Of every $1,000 spent in so-called charity today, it is probable that 950 is unwisely spent, so spent indeed as to produce the very evils which it proposes to mitigate or cure. Neil, how are you doing this afternoon? Pretty good. We are finally doing this episode. Finally. <laughs> After we were, I think we were planning on it in April. And then yeah, we were planning on recording it in April when we were both in Pittsburgh. Right. And then you know, we had other activities that <laughs> interfered with our ability to record a, a good episode for everyone. I think we were also in the middle of reading like Atlas and all these other, yeah. like a couple other. I think we were reading Atlas at the time too. Yeah. As well as something else. So. Yeah. I, I just remember we were knee deep in a lot of reading. And we were like, you know what? You want to just push this one? Push it. Carnegie's not going anywhere. Yeah, exactly. He'll, <laughs> he'll be here. He'll be here. So uh, yeah, so we were going to do this at that time. But this is a pretty cool piece of writing that he had. And it's an essay. Yeah. Was it a speech or an essay? I think essay. Essay. I okay. actually, you know what? Uh, we should have looked it up. I don't know the exact context <laughs> of, of what it was. Well, it was late in his life when he was already wealthy. It was later in his life. Yeah. Because I think that he and obviously we're talking about the gospel of wealth by Andrew Carnegie. And he wrote this, I suppose, to explain his philosophy on money and wealth. Yep. Probably partially because at his point in history, when he was, you know, wealthy and becoming powerful, it was really one of the first time or first eras in history where individuals could amass that kind of wealth without being sovereigns of some type. Right. It was really kind of like a new thing. Yep. And there was this big question of like, is it okay? And what do we do about it? And how should people who make you know that much money like use it? Well, and I think uh, to set the stage a little bit, one of the coolest things to do is go to Google and search in today's dollars what Carnegie's uh, wealth was, and yeah. not just his, but like Rockefeller, Rockefeller and Morgan. Yeah, exactly. Like if you go in. It's, I want to say Carnegie's was like 150 million, 150 billion. Sorry. It's something like that. And the crazy thing is like right now we got one guy, Jeff Bezos, who's in that sort of three figure billions category, which is incredible, right? It's yeah. like, wow, it feels like their income inequality is in, in, insane, which, you know, it, you could argue it is, but comparatively to the 1800s in this era, there were several people in yeah. that category of the triple digit billions. Well, I think Rockefeller in today's dollars is like 350 billion, something like, something that. like that. Yeah. And then Mellon also was like uh, in that he was in the triple digits. Uh, Vanderbilt was in the triple digits. Frick, I think, was in like the high double digits. Yeah. There's a lot of people. A lot of money. Yeah. And that's and that's all the top people. Like the people one level lower were probably also pretty wealthy. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, the thing is, these guys had a lot going for them, right? That's true. Yeah. Much looser monopoly laws, right? So they did a lot of shit that just would not be legal today. <laughs> yeah. No, I just meant in the same companies, right? Because Frick, oh, oh, Frick yeah, yeah. never really ran uh, or started, I think, the company. I think he was just Carnegie's like number two. Right. And he just became just as wealthy, almost not just as wealthy, but almost as wealthy as Carnegie. Yeah, pretty wealthy. You know, just for being like the number two, which you see today as well. I mean, for right. the number two person at Amazon, you're probably doing pretty damn yeah, well. Who is the number two? I have person? no idea. But no idea. Well, number two guy at Microsoft, I guess, was Paul Allen. Paul Allen, he got what, four billion or something? He got a lot. He owns yeah. two sports teams. So it's pretty good. He's doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah, All the Google guys did pretty well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you're in that or like top first, like five people, you're going to be a billion and your company is a triple digit billion company. You're going to be pretty well off. He's doing all right. Yeah. But it's, it's an interesting thing because what he talks about in this uh, essay or speech, whatever, whichever, this type of content. I think essay. I think it's an essay. We'll just call it an essay. Yeah. What he talks about is so relevant today still. Yeah. So it's not just this historical piece of writing that's like a curiosity. It's 
just as relevant today and gives you a lot to think about. To think about. (laughs) Well, and part of what's interesting about it, too, is that I think it does go against this idea of super successful business people as bad people. Yeah. Right. Because he he kind of rails against that, too, where he's saying that it's pointless to just hold on to your money. Right. You want to be doing things with it. Right. And his model. Right. I think it's it's hard because he provides a really good model for how wealthy people should use their money. The I guess the only issue with it would be like enforcing it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Expecting everyone to follow it because Carnegie seems like he you know, he had a lot of skin in the game. He actually did the stuff that he talks about. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. In this essay. Well, and do you know if he was pushing for enforcing it or was it more that people should voluntarily do this is like what you should. I think it was like do. a call to arms. I think it was a call yeah. to arms as well. That was the sense that I that seemed like why he wrote the essay right. probably. Kind of like Warren Buffett's giving pledge. There are probably two reasons. Uh, one was that. Yeah, was one was exactly like to convince the other people who were just as rich. Yeah. Second one was probably to rehabilitate his public image a little bit. Probably. Because I'm sure there were, like, I remember there, I haven't read this recently, but I remember when I read uh, a biography about him, he was like very deeply troubled by all the strikes that were going on in his own company. And because he was poor, right? Like growing up, he was poor. And so he sort of felt this like connection to poor people. And then he never realized, I think, until those strikes, like, that some people didn't like him. Yeah. They get like, he just re- didn't realize that. And he might have written this as, yeah, trying to make himself look a little better. Yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm not just this evil. Make poor people like him. Yeah. Exactly. Cause it probably, like, if he deep down identified with those people, it probably was like, wait, what? Like, I'm, I'm one of you. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, but then he probably realized he's not perceived that way. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. So, so he opens up by pointing out that. Uh, as he calls it, the problem of his age, and obviously we see it even more so today, is actually, I don't know, do we see it more so or at the same level? Anyway, it's similar, but it's probably, yeah, it's similar. Yeah, it's probably the, it seems like there was this peak at that time of these so-called robber barons, right, of people mm-hmm. who got massively wealthy by start founding like, honestly, transformational companies. Yeah, the, sort of the first national corporation. Yep. And then there's this middle period of like, I don't want to call it stagnation, but it's not stagnation, but it's like administrators, like people who maintained that infrastructure. Yeah. Everything kind of like stays fair. Yeah. Like they didn't start GM, right? But they might have like been CEO of GM. Like you're not going to ever be as wealthy. You're not going to be a triple digit billionaire maintaining GM. Right. Right. But then, and then now today we're living in this other transformational era where people have started, you know, very transformational companies like the founders of Google or Amazon or... It's really like the railroads. That's what I'm saying. Were theirs, were their like spark. And for us, it's probably the internet. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of these two periods of time that are vaguely similar in in a lot of ways. Yeah. I would say there's a couple of key differences though. Like our society does have a bit more of a safety net than there was at that time because there's just like nothing at that yeah. time there's no social security no medicare no food stamps well and you could also get way richer because there's basically no income tax too. yeah no income tax no monopoly law antitrust right. laws uh yeah there was just a whole lot of differences in that era but i think your point that you were saying when they're similar is that we do have incredible wealth right certain incredibly wealthy individuals in the world today well and also to go back to the point that he's actually making which is that even a few hundred years ago, basically everyone was at the same level of wealth. Yeah. Right. And especially if you look at uh, hunter-gatherer tribes, right? Even the the leader is not really any materially better off than any other member of the tribe. Yeah. And if you go back to like feudal societies, there'd be a few people, you know, in the king's court 
who are super well off, but then everyone else is basically at the same level. There's almost no wealth disparity. Yeah. And now with these national corporations becoming things, right? And largely because of you've got the Telegram and Train now, so you can have these huge companies. Uh, you're starting to have these situations where individuals are actually amassing huge amounts of wealth that you know the poor cannot. And you're getting this stratification that's really never been seen before. And so his kind of question he's exploring in, in the essay is, okay, well, you know, what, what do we do about that? Exactly. And he also says, too, that it's not necessarily a bad thing because he's got this line here where he says, uh, the contrast between the palace of the millionaire and the cottage of the laborer with us today measures the change which has come with civilization. Much better this great irregularity than universal squalor. Without wealth, there can be no mycenas. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. The good old times were not good old times. Neither master nor servant was as well situated then as today. So he makes this good point, right? Yeah. Where it's you can still feel poor, but you're so much better off than you were 100 years ago. Which I would say is 100% true today as well. Well, it's also like, I mean, you can be poor in America and have a car or a refrigerator, a television, right? Like all of these things that are, you know, they're not necessarily like absolute necessary force us. I mean, they are to be a contributing member of yeah, society, but but there are people in the world who don't have that and are still alive. Yeah, so, it's like poor in yeah. America versus poor in like Ghana, right? right. They're, they're very different things. Yeah. Well, I think also he's he's doing a good job here of dispelling the so we talked about it in the last episode, but the so-called Garden of Eden concept. Right. The good old times, like, oh, back in the day. Yep. He's basically saying, like, hey, back in the day, we all had it bad. Right. <laughs> now, like, some people have it better than others, but we all have it better. All have it better than yeah. what we had before. He also has sort of an argument against socialism here with the universal squalor thing. Yeah. Like, it's better to have the irregularity of income, but at least have some wealth than we all be the same, but have no wealth. Right. <laughs> right. That's one way to have us all be the same. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, because their best example of that, there weren't really any what we would now call socialist societies in the 1800s, but there'd be feudal societies, which yeah. are effectively socialist, right? And so that would probably be the closest analogy they would have. And it's like, all right, would you rather have this unfair competition, but where everyone is at least above like a feudal line, right? Or would you rather have that where you're all living in like hovels and subsistence farming, right? Right. Probably rather have the inequality. Right. Right. And I think, and that's sort of the question today too, because I don't think that any like sane person wants everyone in America to be at the exact same level, right? Maybe a few million people who disagree with you. Okay. Yeah. They're probably, yeah. I, <laughs> I'm just saying. That's why I threw in the sane, right? Like, <laughs> I didn't say there aren't any people. <laughs> they're probably not listening to the podcast. Probably not and if they the are, they're, if they are, they're like throwing a tantrum right now. <laughs> I hope they're very offended right now. Yeah. <laughs> But then the question is, right, what is an acceptable amount of inequality? Yeah. Right. Which is just a hard question. Yeah. Well, and then it's also the uh, the, the same thing with like monopolies, right? It's like um, I was having a good conversation with a friend who works at Google mm -hmm. and is like not like super high up, but like high enough that like he has some window into the decision making. And the interesting thing is like for Google, like Google is a monopoly in a lot of ways, right? Like they basically own search. Yeah. Like. If you want to search something, it's and but it's not a monopoly of force. And that's the thing. They're not preventing anybody from starting another search engine. Right. Right. So it's this weird line of like, okay, everyone's voluntarily going to Google. Like it's not like the internet forces you to go go to Google. Actually, for the longest time, and still I bet people who use Internet Explorer at work, I bet the default goes to Bing. Yeah. Default for Explorer is Bing and default for Safari is Yahoo. Yeah. So so it's definitely not like a forced monopoly of like, oh, all the internet service providers are forcing you to use Google, right? Like, right. But at the same time, 
you know, the the antitrust laws are written in such a way that they're for this this era, basically the railroad era. Yeah. And, you know, people have tried to bring lawsuits against Google for being a monopoly. And he's just saying that's like one thing that you never think of from the outside. But like all these companies, Amazon included, probably are maneuvering to not be viewed as a monopoly. Yeah. There's like a lot of moves they make that to us might be like, why did they do that? Or why would they, you know, buy that company or mm-hmm. do that thing? He was talking about for like Google Ventures and all the stuff that they get involved in there. Mm-hmm. They're kind of sh- trying to show like they're not just a search company. Oh, I Like see. Alphabet does all these different things. And if you look at it, like we might own this niche of search, even though it's a <laughs> triple digit <Yeah>. billions <laughs> niche. Well, actually, I mean, the search part doesn't really make them any money, the, the ads. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the vehicle. Right, right. The ads. But yeah, you're right. They don't charge you to search anything. Yeah. Yeah, but then they can make the argument to like the Justice Department that like, look at all these other things we do, because even if those things never make any money, they're doing all these other things. Yeah. Well, I think the other big challenge with those kinds of monopolies compared to these kinds of monopolies. Exactly. Because these were different, I would say a little bit. Well, but what I was going to say is that these are splittable. Mm. Right. So you could break up Carnegie Steel into like a West Coast and East Coast steel company. Yep. Or AT&T broken up into like seven companies, I think, into like regional right. telecom companies. But you can't really break up Google. Right. Like, what would you do? Yeah. How would you break up the search <laughs> stuff? You just like create mobile, two... Google Mobile. Like, yeah. Google, Google Mobile and Google Web, maybe. <laughs> you couldn't even do that. though. Even really. that would be hard because you'd have to pull from the same data set. Yep. And so the companies would necessarily have to be merged. And even if you just like cloned the data set or something and all the tech and created two companies, one would just naturally end up winning out over the other. It wouldn't be like a regional split. Right. Right. So there's not really a good way to break it up. Yeah. And it's one, of, it, there's not a good way to break it up. There's, uh, yeah, I don't know how like what a government would actually do, but I, I had heard um, like a counter theory to the whole like oh Microsoft missed all these waves. Mm-hmm. Uh, a counter theory to that is that they sort of hamstrung themselves because they got involved in a lot of antitrust lawsuits in the nineties. Yeah. So one of the theories is that like maybe they just like purposely stopped investing in a lot of these new things because oh. they just didn't want to deal with that side of it, and they were like, we have this. We know these this money is going to keep coming in, which it has. Like, yeah, they still make they make a ridiculous amount of money for how uncool they are yeah. <laughs> from the outside. Well, enterprise sales, man. Yeah, yeah. I think they're like the third biggest tech company still. I wouldn't be surprised. I think it's like by that or market cap. I think they're either two or three. You go to any of these like big companies, and they're all using shitty Dell laptops running Windows. Yep. Right? It's- well, and it's not even just Windows. It's like Office and I mean, yeah. there's Skype that they now have like so many big companies use Skype for business now. Yeah, all of their products suck. Like Skype sucks. Office sucks. But they, I bet they package it. They must package it. Yeah. They must be like, okay, well, if you use Windows, then it'll come with... Bing sucks. Explorer sucks. Their phones suck. Their yeah. computers suck. Their <laughs> Windows sucks. They've been able to do that somehow. Oh, they also own a chunk of Facebook. So that's also their valuation a lot. Oh, that helps. I think they own like 3% of Facebook or something. Nice. It's like a non-minuscule. That's probably like double-digit billions. Yeah. Facebook is... Probably Facebook's worth, what, $150 billion? No, no, I think $500 billion. $500 billion. $500 or $600 or something. Yeah, so 3% would be like $15, $20 billion. Yeah. I think Microsoft's up there too, like $500-ish billion as well. And Apple is... I think Apple's like... Apple and Amazon, I think, are closing in on a trillion. Yeah, they got to be getting close. Yeah. So Jeff Bezos must still own more than 10% of Amazon stock. Yeah, probably. It's impressive. I guess he was a solo founder, huh? Right. Yeah. It helps a lot. (laughs) It does help a lot. Well, the interesting thing with the... Antitrust stuff is I wonder how Apple gets around that with the iPhone 
and their computers. How big is their market share, though, in computers? I don't think it's actually as high as it seems. It's not big enough. Yeah, because all the enterprise stuff is, well, not all, but most of enterprise stuff is not Apple. I thought part of the problem with Microsoft was antitrust stuff around not allowing other software to be installed on Windows. And that's definitely what Apple does. Yeah. Right? So I wonder how they... I how they're getting around that. Get around that. Maybe the market share is just not high enough. Yeah, maybe they still have enough market share for it to be a concern. Yeah. Although iPhones have a lot. I don't know what the percentages are, but I just feel like iPhones are all over the place. Well, as global market share, they're super low. That's a good point. Yeah. And also, I'm thinking as I said that out loud, I wonder if it's just people of our demographic, even in the US. Are, it's like all the people we hang out with have iPhones. Right, but that doesn't mean shit. But it's like people who live in New York, Boston, SF, DC, LA, yep. and are in like probably the top 5% of income earners. So it's not really a representative sample. Yeah, that's a good point. So maybe the market share is just not high enough for anyone to care. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. That makes sense. Because I remember Windows had like massive market share in the 90s. It was like every computer had Windows. It was really all there was. Every office computer had Windows. Yeah. You'd like occasionally see a Mac. And it would be like weird. Yeah. Be yeah. Like, Whoa, what is that? Yeah. Why is it blue? Yeah. <laughs> Remember those iMacs? Yeah, with the big like bulb yep. things on the back. It's so strange. <laughs> I looking. thought they were so cool though at that time compared to yeah. like the standard like looking computer. I was like ugly computer. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. No, they were like they this were... doesn't look like a corporate thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's fun. It's orange. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you're, that's a good question. Like, it's you can't really break up Google. Yeah, or Apple for that matter. Or Apple, it'd be hard unless you split out the computer and phone. Yeah. Section. See, Facebook is easier to break up. Yeah, because you could have... You could just say Facebook and Instagram have to be separate companies. Or WhatsApp, yeah. right? Or Facebook and Messenger. Or Yeah, like that doesn't seem as hard for someone to split up. Yeah, it seems a little easier. Um, so what uh, Carnegie is kind of... What he goes on to say is that we have all... Uh, we have this inequality, which kind of comes from natural competition. But he's also pointing out that the kind of like the benefits outweigh the costs. Mm. So he says the price which society pays for the law of competition like the price it pays for cheap comforts and luxuries is also great, but the advantage of this law are also greater still. For it is to this law that we owe our wonderful material development, which brings improved conditions in its train. And I think that's like an important distinction with a lot of this stuff is that it's not necessarily that competition is good, right? But one, it leads to generally better things than no competition. And it's better than the alternative, right? Where it's like, Yes, okay, this isn't great, but it's kind of like the best option that we have. Yeah. Well, the alternative is a top-down yeah. approach to... Very authoritative product development. Feudal yeah. or socialist economy, which is not desirable. Yeah, and I think also people miss the side of uh, lower prices for any product means you have more money in your pocket and everybody else has more money in their pocket. Yeah. You know, and then um, that's just... It lets you go spend on other stuff. So it makes society in general richer. Right. Because now like you're getting the same product for less money. And the only impetus to do that would be competition. Like, why would you voluntarily lower your prices? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, why would you lower your SEO prices? Exactly. If there were no competition, yeah. it's all right, cool. We charge whatever we want. Well, and that's why you're you, like, I always find that for any company, it's like much easier and more fun when, yeah. when you are either like, you're so good at what you do, which I would say like for growth machine, right? You guys have built such a good reputation. You have such a good reputation. So you're able to charge like kind of what you want and people are willing to pay for that because they want to work with you. Yeah. But if you were just like 
an overseas SEO shop that was like spamming people's WordPress sites. Oh, yeah. Like you would not be able to charge what you charge. Yeah. <laughs> because you're a commodity at that point. Right, right. Right. And so, yeah, it's like you're kind of able to, to like, but the only reason you would ever lower your price is if, let's say, a similar type of person, let's say there was a clone of Net came in and also started Growth Machine 2.0. And then you'd be like, all right, we got to go beat that guy. Exactly. <laughs> and then because your customers would be talking to both and then you'd have to lower the price. Yeah. Which is why everybody, I think like that's the reason like a lot of companies get terrified of Amazon. Amazon is, okay, there's caveat. I'm going to make a disclaimer. They do do some shitty, like somewhat underhanded things. Mm-hmm. Let's ignore that for a second. <laughs> Let's just talk about it in abstract. <laughs> what they do in abstract is they're just like hyper efficient and they cut out a lot of the bloat. And a lot of industries have a lot of bloat to cut. Yeah. And that's why people hate them. Because (laughs) if you're used to bloat, you don't want to cut your prices. But your customers want lower prices. Exactly. And Amazon can come in with a basics line of the thing that you sell. Yep. Right. And it knows kind of your margin and what you're charging and all that. And they can just beat you. Right. Right. It's like a few of my friends who run e-commerce businesses, they don't do their warehousing or fulfillment through Amazon. Yeah. Like they don't do the FBA stuff because they just don't want Amazon to have that data. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Yeah. I totally believe it. So it'd be scary, right? Especially if you're doing anything that can be relatively commoditized. Yeah. Right. Because you know they will come for you eventually. And there's so many big companies that are built on commodities. Yeah. That's like terrifying for them. I know, uh, so like, uh, obviously, even in just beer, right, there's private label beer, and Costco's in certain states are allowed to sell beer. Okay. So Costco does its own beer, they do a private label beer. Oh, smart. Uh, so we, we actually work with a brewery that makes the Costco beer. Yeah. So I know the price that they what I'm not going to share on, on here. But let's just say they are able to do uh, for the exact same price that it, they buy Bud Light for mm-hmm. at that Costco. They're able to buy this private label, very similar beer, right? It's like, I think the same amount of alcohol, similar taste. They say it's better. I haven't tasted, you know, this beer. So who knows if it tastes better. Basically meant to compete with Bud Light. So instead of selling Bud Light comes in a 24 pack at that Costco. This one comes in a 36 pack. Wow. And it's the same exact price. I believe it. Because they're just, they don't have like the Super Bowl ads and they don't have like, they don't have all the bloat. Yeah. Like there's no marketing budget. It's just the Kirkland I don't know what they call it. Kirkland Lager or something. Yeah. Yeah. Kirk Lager. <laughs> yeah. It's like Kirkland Light Lager or something. It's like what they call it. And it's. Have you had the Kirkland vodka? No, but I've heard it's good. It's honestly as good as like Absolute or something for half the price. Oh, I had a Kirkland uh, Rioja wine and it was pretty good. I believe that. It was pretty good. I mean, it wasn't that cheap. It was like, I think, nine bucks for the bottle. So it's not that cheap. But I think for. The price, I was repressed. Yeah. If you can drink a $9 bottle and enjoy it, you're living right. <laughs> yeah. It was like like Costco does a good job with that. And it's the same Amazon Basics model. It's that, yeah. hey, we already have all these captive customers. Like, why are we not just doing this ourselves? <laughs> yep. And then, yeah, you cut out the bloat and you can deliver more value. That's why you can do a 36-pack because the guess where that price difference is going to the Anheuser-Busch's marketing budget. Super Bowl ads and, yeah, the brand name. Yeah. It's like, have you seen that company, Brandless? Yeah. Yeah. So, a deal gets a lot of stuff from there. Yeah. And their products are really good. Yeah. And they're super cheap because there's none of the silly brand tax. And to be fair, Brandless is the brand. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it, there's still branding, obviously. And it's really nice brand. They don't do, like, the same type of uh, marketing, though, right, in their products. I think they do almost no marketing. Yeah. I think it's just word of mouth. Yep. And... Their stuff is really good and everything is $3. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Yeah, which is a pretty cool way of doing it. And and I know what some of those products cost to make and they're still making a lot of money on it. Still making good money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, there's definitely a way to do it. It's just that the the that differential is going to marketing. Right. So, if you find it, sort of the, the magic 
sauce, I guess, is finding a marketing channel that's either built in. So you're a Costco or an Amazon. Yeah. You already have all these people coming there or you have some other cheaper form of marketing, whether that's you are an influencer and you can post on Instagram and you're going to instantly get 10,000 people to go to, to your store because you're, Chloe, you know, you're a Khloe Kardashian or something. <laughs> and so, you know, there's different ways of doing it, but finding that sort of alternative marketing channel is where that extra margin comes from. Yeah. And then you can lower your prices. But that's only caused again by competition. Exactly. You have to have competition like as a starting point for any of that to work. But I think that's great for the industries too that are getting affected because the, the bloated ones that can't compete basically are going to die. Yeah. Right. And I think I was actually talking to someone in the publishing industry recently about this, about how like independent bookstores have started. There's actually been a net gain in independent hmm. bookstores over the past year. Why? Well, they just think all the bad ones died. Oh. Like all the bad ones shut down. And then the good ones like Strand or um, just, you know, some of the, the ones that have been able to build a loyal following and actually deliver value, they're coming back. Right. Well, not coming back. They just never died. And then there's less competition for them. They absorbed all the customers. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So, uh, yeah. And they like do events and other cool things. And that's kind of like, it's almost like the forest fire analogy, right? Like you cut out the dead wood. Yeah. yeah you burn away the brush and yeah. then the rest of the trees can do better. But that's what competition brings and can be painful if you're one of the things that definitely will be painful if you're one of the things that gets burned. <laughs> yeah. It gets burned. But in general for consumers, it's great. Yeah, exactly. It ends up being a net positive for consumers in the long run. Which is what the market is for. It's what the market needs. Yeah. Though we'll talk about some examples next week where that isn't true. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was going to save it. <laughs> save <Yeah. some> of <laughs> those. <laughs> uh, it's actually, we, we've got a good kind of like economics theme going yeah. on in a few of these episodes. We I found we got like certain buckets that come up. Yeah, that we'll like dabble in for a little little bit. We got like the mythology bucket. Yeah. And then we got the like economics bucket, psychology bucket. Yeah. It's good. It's very, it's very broad. Yeah. Broad podcast. Keeps people interested. Keeps them coming back for more. Exactly. Now we got what Atlas Jungle Jungle this, this next, next week. week yeah. Which if you're on the Patreon, then you would, you know. would know what we're referring to. Yeah, and secret. if you're not, you should you should go to go join the Patreon. Patreon.com/slash Made You Think. Yep, where you get all of our notes from the episodes. You get our bonus audio transcripts. We had a good conversation actually about the publishing industry. Yeah, before this episode started, you also get. Updates on the upcoming books. That was the other thing. Oh, I thought you were going to make something up like you used to. I, I would never, I would never make something <laughs> up. <laughs> Except in this case, we're not giving out money. We're, yeah, exactly. We're not we're, giving out money. We are. You're giving us you're, money, you're, actually. You're giving out money. <laughs> I like this model much better. <laughs> uh, uh, all right. Anyway, back to somebody who has a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so he goes on to say the, the question is about how do we administer wealth, right? Because he basically takes it as a given that we want competition. We want these businesses to be able to happen because it makes everyone better off. But then he says, what is the proper mode of administering wealth after the laws upon which civilization is founded have thrown it into the hands of the few? And it is of this great question that I believe I offer the true solution. It will be understood that fortunes are here spoken of, not moderate sums saved by many years of effort, the returns on which are required for the comfortable maintenance and education of families. That is not wealth, but only competence which it should be the aim of all to acquire. So Keon is saying, like, to be clear here, we're talking about people with just a fuck ton of money. Right. Right. Jeff Bezos, uh, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, like what should they be doing with their excess cash? Right. And it's distinctly a problem of when it's thrown into the hands of the few. And that's kind of what he's going to set out to answer the question of in this article. And he kind of goes on and he, he pulls a Socrates here. Right. <laughs> so he creates sort of like an artificial trichotomy. 
Uh, and there are probably other things that could be done, but he decides, like, no, these are the only three things that could be done with money. But it's a rhetorical device. It is. It is. It's a way to focus the conversation. It's a good way to focus the conversation. Not go on tangents. <laughs> Avoid tangents. Exactly. He says, uh, there are about three modes in which surplus wealth can be disposed of. It can be left to the families of the descendants, or it can be bequeathed for public purposes, or finally, it can be administered during their lives by its possessors. So you've got these three options. Yep. Leave it to your children, give it to the government, use it all yourself. You, yeah, use it in whatever means you think are... Yeah, use it based on your own judgment. Yeah. I Actually, you know, to be fair, I don't know what other option there is. There's stupid stuff like, oh, you could burn it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, what else could there be? Because... Yeah. I mean, there's also hybrids between the two, right? Yeah, obviously. So I think the second option, like give it to the government, is that's like 100% death tax. Right. Effectively, like when you die, everything goes back to... The, the government, which is that's one way, but then you could do like thirty percent debt tax, and you know seventy percent could be whatever. But then I guess you could still always use it during your lifetime, right? So, but yeah, I don't know what else you would have besides burn it or bury it in bury it. yeah hidden treasure, convert it to Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so he goes on from there and he starts exploring each one of the three options. And he starts by uh, basically saying that leaving money to your children is terrible. Yeah. Uh, that your kids don't learn the meaning of money. They don't learn how to earn it themselves. They get kind of spoiled. Well, I think it takes to take a second to go into his background. Like he took pride in being self-made. Yeah. Right. And like he didn't really have anything growing up. He was an immigrant from Scotland, moved to Pittsburgh, I think, right away. Right. I think I haven't read his biography. Okay. So. Yeah. But anyway, he's. Yeah, but he's he was very poor growing up. And uh, I think he actually, in later years, you know, of course, some of this is narrative fallacy and stuff, but he viewed that as being like shaping his thought process and partially why he was successful Yeah, is because he didn't really have anything. So he understood the value of money at a much earlier age than other people might. So he kind of probably, I mean, I'm just from that sense or that paragraph, right? I, I think he is viewing it as like, okay, if you give money to your kids, you're kind of robbing them of the potential to learn those things for themselves so it's almost a curse you know you're it's not a favor you're doing to your kids it's actually you're hurting them right and it's so probably so easy too for kids to end up just spending away the whole fortune you know they don't know how to handle the money yep they don't know how to like run the business any of that well they always say that for for family like generational wealth they say what is it first generation makes it second generation maintains it third generation loses it yeah i believe that's that because <laughs> the people would always say that at uh at este oh okay because they were into the third the third generation starting soon uh so second did a good job first did a great job obviously and then third one we'll see how it goes but yeah oh like family business in general seems like a terrible idea seems really yeah of all the people in the world who could run your business you think that the one who just happens to be related to you is going to do the best job well, it's monarchy it's monarchy. yeah it, it's it's a modern monarchy yeah right it's like and it's probably sort of a uh it's probably also pyramid building there. yeah exactly it's pyramid building denial of death yeah like you know, I'll trust my biological pyramid to maintain my physical pyramid. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's probably exactly what's going on yeah. with that. Yeah. But it was interesting that he so quickly shut shut that down like saying yeah, yeah that's a terrible idea <laughs> <laughs> immediately dispenses with it uh, and then he gets into the second option where he says uh, as to the second mode that of leaving wealth at death for public uses it may be said that this is only a means for the disposal of wealth provided a man is content to wait until he is dead before it becomes of much good to the world 
So he's basically saying that you're just throwing your money away. Yeah. And he obviously does not have a very high opinion of the government's ability to use money, it seems. (laughs) Well, especially anybody who believes in like the market system. Yeah. It's just a it's just an inefficient way. And also, oh, we should have also mentioned this early on, but he was a pretty hardcore uh, Darwinist. Like he was really into evolution. Yeah. Even because that was right around the time that that theory was was sort of coming up. Coming out. Right. And so... There is this underlying belief in his all of his work and writing that like the people who have amassed the wealth are sort of like the survival of the fittest. Like they have last they have they've gotten there for like a reason. They're more fit. They're more yeah. fit to decide where the money could go, just even if you're purely donating it. Right. Right. So in his view, that was like that was what it was. It was um yeah, it's just like that's that, that's one of the like what's it called? It's like intersections of his interests mm. probably are permeating in this as well. And so government is kind of the antithesis. 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 I'm not even going to try it. (laughs) (laughs) It's the opposite of that, right? So synonyms. Yeah, exactly. Gotta love English. (laughs) 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 So government's kind of like top down. It's almost like the creationist view of, you know, it's like God told us to do this, right? As opposed to, no, this one out, this gene one out because it was best adapted to its environment. Well, and to be fair, I mean, I find... I find it, it's seductive, that argument. Yeah, I find it compelling and I don't know a good counter argument to it, right? Because I think that to amass a big fortune and to build a big business, you have to have a good idea of how to use money effectively. Yeah. Right. And it doesn't require any financial competence to be elected to public office. Right. And so why should you trust a public official with, you know, no particular economic business or fiscal skills to, you know, dole out money when you could trust somebody who has like proven that they are an expert in like something at least related to that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I buy the argument. I think there are gaps and then that's where government comes in but it's like in general this makes a lot more sense and then also you got to say there's other cool things that if it's an individual giving money like donating money versus government doing it no one really has the right to tell that individual you can't donate to this thing whereas if the government tried to like put money into a certain thing there's always people on the other side regardless of what side it is oh yeah yeah, yeah. who are gonna make a big fuss about it and then, you know, you'll probably do it inefficiently because you'll have to give money to like their other pet cause to make those people quiet. Right. Bounce out. And then now you're not being as efficient. Yeah. Like just imagine if you have like $100 to give out. You can't give all 100 to Nat's cause because now Neil is going to get pissed off. So you're going to have to give like $50 to Nat's cause and $50 to Neil's cause. Whereas if it was just if it was just my money, I could just give all $100 to Nat's cause. Yeah. You can give me $100 if you want. That's fine. Who cares what Neil says, right? It's like, <laughs> I'm just... <laughs> So, yeah, it's like, I mean, it's sounds vaguely uh, like a dictatorship, but it makes sense if it's... Well, it's probably more efficient. Yeah. I mean, dictatorships are much more efficient than democracies. Right. Right. Because you just have an arbiter, right? It's just like, nope, this is what we're doing. For reasons discussed on the last podcast, there are advantages to democracy because you conjecture more. You come up with more creative ideas. Yeah. Although I would argue that there might be more benefit to short-term dictatorships. How do you decide who the short-term dictator is? Warlords? Well, I'm saying like democracy until someone's elected. Oh, I see. So like four-year dictatorships. I see. So once you're in... Once you're in, you are the decider. And then like fewer checks on that ability, right? But then you're betting that that person will not fuck up the entire thing. You are. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also like, it's impossible. See, no, but that's a... That's a um, 
it's not a fat tail problem, but that's a problem of like, it's like a Russian roulette problem. It's like, if you're right, that'll be good. But it just takes being wrong once for the whole thing to come down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'd have to have other things like you couldn't let everyone vote, right? Mm. We need like a more Athenian democracy. You need more of the landowners only. No, yeah, kidding. basically. <laughs> Gmail addresses only. Yeah. <laughs> you still use an Hotmail, you don't get a vote. <laughs> what is it? iPhones only? No, yeah, iPhones only. <laughs> Well, I, I saw I saw something. I don't remember where this was. It was an argument about who should be able to vote on what. And it made like one of the examples it gave was that old people shouldn't be allowed to vote on Social Security. Mm. Skin in the game problem. They have too much skin in the game. They, yeah, they only have benefit in the game and no costs, right? Whereas young people might not actually want to pay into a social security program right anymore i mean the other way to do it is just don't affect the people who are receiving it just make but then i guess anybody who's close to receiving it is also going to think about that and right you'd have to have like a taper off thing yeah something like that because i have heard um i think ron paul proposed that at one point where he said let young people just basically opt out yeah and then not have to pay in and then you're basically saying i'm never not going to take any either and then he, he was saying that he bets like a significant percentage of young people would do that. I would absolutely. I would absolutely that. do that too. Yeah. If there is uh, one entity I don't trust with my retirement savings, it is the federal government. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's the thing too, is like, if you're relatively entrepreneurial, you can do so much more with that money now than like tossing it in a government fund. Well, and I think to be fair to him, his proposal was not that you don't have to pay in at all. It was you pay in way less. And then the amount that gets paid in is just purely a tax. Yeah. Like it's just it's just a tax. It's it's basically not hiding the fact that it is a redistributive program. Right. Because and at this point it is. It is. The fund is like emptied. Right. Yeah. So you're paying it in. It's a Ponzi. It's going, yeah. It's going straight. It's a legal Ponzi scheme. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is only going to get like worse as the rest of the baby boomers like start drawing out of it. Right. Yeah. So there's uh Although I have heard they're going to do more incentives to get people to just take lump sums instead of because the, the issue is that it's also in perpetuity mm. and lifespans are going up. And right. like if you're like, what was the thing? It's like not that life expectancy is 80. If you're 80 today, it's not like you're expected to die this year. It goes up as you stay alive. Right. right. So the that's the other problem is it's like a yearly income guarantee. Well, and when it was created, life expectancy was like 68. Right. So the math worked at that time, but then now it's like, it's like 80. Yeah, it's 80. But then as advances happen and people just stay alive longer, like the people who are 80 today and receiving it might still be receiving it in 10 years. Right. It's not like they're out of the system this year. <laughs> well, yeah. And for, for people like you're in my generation, life expectancy is probably 90 to 100. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's one of those things too, that's like, it's hard to predict because of what we had just read in the previous book. Yeah. Exactly. It might be 200. Right. Like for all we know, right? We just have no idea. Well, and the tricky thing too with life expectancy is that there's like a biological line at about 120. Yeah. Right. Like the body isn't designed to get past that. That's true. Yeah. So if you're going to get past that, there has to be some sort of genetic re-engineering stem cell. Or offloading your brain into something. There's you, there's no way to be so healthy that you live to 150. Yeah. Right. Like there has to be something else. But there could be. But there could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying like what's interesting with that problem is that it's unlikely to me. I think it's unlikely we'll ever have lifespans of 150. Mm. In this biological body, basically. Or at all. No, no, no. Like I think that we'll either have lifespans of. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like. 500 or we'll never we'll never get there yeah it's like a bi more binary thing yeah it's not like a small linear increase because all we've been doing is making ourselves less unhealthy so far like getting closer to that kind of biological limit yep but pushing that 
forward a little bit doesn't make sense, right? right? Because even if we cure cancer and everything, we'd still die around 120. Right. So it's like, yeah, it's like you're not going to go further past that just by removing the unhealthy things. Right. You have to start engineering something that makes you live significantly longer. And if you're able to do that, then I don't see why it would stop at 150, right? Yeah. Because you would have to, I guess if you could do some like stem cell stuff and telomer reproduction, right? Then you could theoretically expand it slowly, right? But I feel like it would fairly quickly get pretty far out. I would agree with that. Yeah. And also you'd have a thing where it's like, as long as you're young enough, when it starts to happen, you could kind of like keep catching the curve. So, you know, you, let's say the advancement starts when we're 40 and it means you can live 10 years longer. Right. And then you're 50 now, it can be like 20 years longer. And so it's like, you're back to being 40. Right. Like in terms of, in terms of like real or relative age effectively. Exactly. So as long as you catch it early enough, then you kind of theoretically become biologically immortal at least. Yeah. Because they would keep getting better at it. So we'll be on Mars by then. We'll be on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be on Mars. I'll be great looking like 300 year olds. <laughs> See you in 200 years now. See, yeah. <laughs> we'll be on episode like 20,000. Yeah. <laughs> we ran out of books, guys. <laughs> we'll be like, yeah. We finished them all. We'll be like, this made you think. (laughs) We'll still be doing the same shenanigans. (laughs) Same jokes. We'll have Cyborg Pepper with us. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's a good point. I don't even know how we got on that tangent. No, me neither. But something about public uses. Oh, yeah. Just that I would trust these people, I think, a little more. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I just wouldn't trust really the government. Like, I can see why he doesn't trust the government with this. Yeah. These types of decisions. Because, yeah, it just doesn't seem as efficient as doing it the way that he's pushing for. Right. And and I like the point that Carnegie makes here too, which is that money is better used in lump sums at specific things than distributed in small amounts to everyone. So he's kind of saying that if you've got a city with a population of, you know, 10,000 people and you can either build them a library for a million or give them each a hundred dollars, like the city's better off if you build them the library. Well, it's a leverage point. Yeah. Right. It's like you might be able to educate somebody who could then go create more wealth for the town, right? right? Whereas $100 would probably just be spent on food and alcohol. Have a little party or something. Yeah, buy some beer and then (laughs) it's gone. Yep. Right. And so that's part of the point he's making too against taxes is the taxes in many ways are like redistributing small amounts to everyone, right? So taking from like the rich and giving out and welfare and stuff to the poor. And he's saying that's less helpful than specific public works that can enrich those neighborhoods that need it. Yeah. Uh, which is why, you know, we see so many Carnegie libraries and music halls and all that stuff. And universities. And universities. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was so big on that. Well, which he was very much helped by. So that was another thing right. in his biography is like, he viewed that as how he became so, uh, like how he got to where he got basically. Mm. Is like, he was, he was working from like a very early age, but then he'd also always have a book with him. And I think he was like a telegram operator at one point, oh, cool. which meant there was a lot of waiting. So he would just be reading a ton. And it reminded me of those internships that we both had, yeah. which were you know office jobs, but we had a lot of time to read. It's kind of similar in that way. So many books. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's just like he had a very similar experience with that. So he views libraries or he views books as like a way to move up and change. So he, I think in, his, in the biography, I, there was a way of putting it where it was like, you get to like converse with all these people who are great, great people. I think he said great men, yeah. right? Who are in these books who you otherwise would never be able to talk to. And so that was his way of sort of getting out of, you know, his physical reality and 
imagining where he could get to. So I think libraries just held like a special place in his in his mind. I think he should support the Made You Think podcast on Patreon. He definitely would. He would support. I think yeah. maybe this is where he could use some of his. Uh, exactly. <laughs> we would. We're inspiring readers. The Think Fund. The Think yeah. Fund. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone who doesn't have the time to read, go to Letcher Bach and just listen to our episode. <laughs> it's almost as good. Maybe CMU can. There we go. We can make this argument to CMU and be like. <laughs> Andrew Carnegie would would want us to do that. Would want you to do this. I don't think CMU would sponsor us, considering how much we shit on CMU in the no, podcast. I know. I don't think they would. <laughs> Although, if they don't listen to it, maybe we'd get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Carnegie has some descendants. I'm sure there got to be. I've never heard of a Carnegie family, though. I think he had a daughter, and then I'm sure, I think she probably took her last name. Oh, and then she probably married. Yeah, her last name. Yeah. Yeah, I forget what that last name was, but there was also some connection to CMU there. Anyway, I'll look it up later. Yeah, curious now. It's a cool name. Yeah. And it seems like maybe it's just rare, right? Like, why don't you see it anymore? Yeah, it's not like a Smith or something. Yeah, exactly. So so what he's getting to with this discussion of, okay, we should build libraries, not just hand out small sums of money, is kind of his idea for what men of wealth should do. And he says, uh, this then is held to be the duty of the man of wealth. First, to set an example of modest, unostentatious living, shunning display or extravagance, to provide moderately for the legitimate wants of those dependent upon him, and after doing so, to consider all surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds, which he is called upon to administer and strictly bound as a matter of duty to administer in the manner which, in his judgment, is best calculated to produce the most beneficial results for the community. The man of wealth thus becoming the mere agent and trustee for his poorer brethren, bringing to their service his superior wisdom, experience, and ability to administer, doing for them better than they would or could do for themselves. And this is, I think, the main thesis. Yeah. That if you are wealthy, it is your job to enrich the lives of those less well off than you because you know better what to do with the money than the government and you know better what to do with the money than they do. Right. Like you can't just toss money at them and expect that to fix things, you need to figure out ways you can use the money to make their lives better. Well, and I think the point he made, uh, which in his judgment is best calculated to produce the most beneficial results for the community, it's kind of in, in imploring the person to find a leverage point. Yeah. Like what is the thing that you could invest in that's going to have the most payoff for the benefit of the community? Is that like, whether? and I think in his opinion, that would be like libraries and ways of educating the population. But you know, you, today you could say that that could be, you know, helping people get internet access or helping them get, you know, phones or teaching them to sell towers. Yeah. Or software skills or yeah. like, yeah, you know, it depends what your opinion is on all these different things. It also depends where in the world you're talking about. Right. Right. Like I wouldn't say access to the internet is like that big of a problem in the US, but there are parts of the world where that's a huge problem. There's, just, yeah. like, there's no way to get online. <laughs> that's changing though. That, that's changing pretty rapidly. Well, it'll be cool to see what happens with some of these global internet initiatives, right? So the Facebook planes and the um, SpaceX satellites. Yep. I think the satellites are more promising. That's like almost the modern day version of the library that Carnegie was going for. Yeah. Because the premise is that the internet will enable you to connect with the world, educate yourself. Obviously, if you have the internet, like you can listen to Made You Think so you can learn all about these different books. It's the first thing I would do if I discovered the internet. I'd be like, yo, I've heard about this Made You Think podcast. Seriously. Getting on that. Yeah. It's trickled to word of mouth yeah. to <laughs> the Amazonian tribes. <laughs> it's like, Made You Think. We're huge in Brazil. <laughs> uh, no, but you could, I mean, you could access all of MIT's courses. Yeah. Or like Stanford's courses. and. Yeah, the internet is like a portal to the world in the way that at this time, like books and libraries were. And I still think books have a ton of value, obviously, otherwise we wouldn't be doing this 
podcast, but um, but in this, you know, I can see why someone would invest in getting people internet access yeah. as being like a leverage point. I wonder how easily someone with just internet access can like learn English. That's true. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, uh, how good are those tools? I think the Duolingo English learning is pretty good. Oh, it's supposed to be pretty good. Yeah. And it's free. So they do certifications for it now. Yeah. And yeah. it's free. So that, that w- those would be interesting stories. The internet's a double-edged sword, though, now that I just thought about it. Yeah, it's a lot of fake news. There's also a lot of distractions. A lot of distractions. Where's a library? You kind of would only... Like, I'm sure th- there are shitty books, right? But it's, like, harder to find. <laughs> like, there's no Reddit version of... There's no, like, library version of Reddit. You can imagine a story of some, like, enterprising billionaire drops, you know... Everybody finds Pornhub. <laughs> yeah, I was, that's what I was getting to. Drops like a thousand cheap tablets into the middle of rural China and comes back in two years to see like what <laughs> progress they've made. And they're all just like hooked on Pornhub and Reddit. <laughs> I'm surprised Pornhub hasn't done that as like a marketing stunt. That would be hilarious. <laughs> Pornhub internet satellite. <laughs> Free idea, Pornhub. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, porn is something like 40% of all internet traffic. Yeah. It's, it's a crazy it's, amount. Yeah. And a lot of like internet innovations kind of like start come from port. Yeah, streaming video being the most notable one. I heard certain like ad technologies as well come mm-hmm. from the port industry. Yeah, streaming, I think was a big one. Yeah, streaming video, uh, video timeline highlights, right? So the thing where now on YouTube, you can like put your mouse over where in the video you want to go and a little thing pops up that shows you what's happening at that scene. Like that started with porn sites. Oh, wow. Um, I'm sure there's other stuff too. Yeah, that's the secret of Google. That's yeah. that's how they came up with it. They were like, how do we find... They the right copied the search of- algorithms <laughs> from these um, early porn sites. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, it's... Um, I The way I read that sentence is that he's basically asking them to look for a leverage point. Yeah. Like, what is the what is the thing you can invest in that's going to best benefit the community? And they probably wouldn't be able to do that themselves. Right. The community... And also, I mean, trusting the community to decide yeah. to do it would be a lot. Or right? So you just kind of got to pop in and do it yourself. Yeah. Which I feel like you don't see as much of anymore. No, you see a lot of it. Like, do you? With certain billionaires, they, they okay. do that. Like, I mean, Gates is probably the best example. That's fair. Gates does a lot. That they just do exactly what they think. Like the the malaria nets thing. Right. Like they've done that kind of single-handedly. I think they've got other people and like organizations involved, but I know yeah. it was like that it's their money that's really doing it. And then I know that he's doing a lot of stuff around education as well. Right. It's just something he believes in and wants to push. And so it's his money again that he's pushing for it. And donated that whole building at CMU. Yeah. So, uh, Although that may be a pyramid that he's building. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> right? Well, it's, it's yeah. a pyramid and a way to recruit. <laughs> See, the malaria nets are a little less because it's not like your name on the net. Yeah, exactly. Right? Well, like the building for... I always be skeptical of the buildings for the schools. It's like, are you really doing this? Because like... Well, and also for Gates, it's like putting a building at Carnegie Mellon is also a way to attract programmer talent. That's true. Right? Because you're walking around all the time saying like, oh, I'm going to Gates. I'm going to Gates. I'm going to the Gates Center. Well, and all the CS classes are in there. All the anyway. CS classes are in Gates. That's not by accident. He didn't want the architecture department uh-uh. in- <laughs> By the time you graduate, you're just like, oh yeah, Microsoft. Gates, right. Gates, CS, Gates, Gates CS. computer program. Yeah. It would be weird. Like, uh, Apple, I get it. For some reason, I puke every time yeah, I think of no Apple. job yeah. building. Yeah. <laughs> Jobs building. So yeah, there's definitely like, I get why people do it. There is a philanthropic part to it, but yeah, I'm not fully convinced it's all philanthropic. Pyramid building too. Yeah. Well, that's like the whole effect of altruism idea, right? Is that yeah. most really effective altruism is actually not very branded like it's hard to you know put your name on it because stuff like the malaria nets are a big one or have you heard of uh give directly Mm -mm. 
So I think that's the name. And this is considered one of the most effective. Give direct, uh, is it Give Direct? Maybe it's Give Directly. What I've heard is something called Give Direct. I think I've heard something. Like yeah, maybe it's just Give Direct. Uh, but it's literally just a site where people in poor communities ask for a certain amount of money to do a certain thing. And then you can donate and it goes straight to them. Is there any verification of what they're doing with that money? Or I like, assume the platform is doing something for it. Like I can't just say, oh, I'm starting this orphanage in country X and then I get the money and then no one knows what happens to it. They, they must have something to account. They for must that. have something. Maybe I get the point though. Maybe it'd, it'd be clear if they did something like if we find out that anyone in your town misused it, Ooh. then the whole town loses, right? Like that's a community enforcement. Then yeah, yeah, that's a cool, that's a cool concept. If I were running the business, I'd probably do something like that. Celeb would agree. Yeah. It's like skin in the game for the whole community. Yeah. Self-policing. Uh, but anyway, that's considered one of the most effective altruism things you can do. Yeah. Is it's literally you just like send a hundred dollars to a person in Nigeria who's like trying to like get supplies for their shoe shop, right? It's very specific targeted things. Yeah. But you can't put your name on any of that. Exactly. Like Kiva's the same way. Like Kiva's supposed to be very helpful. And I actually I kind of like Kiva better because it's a little more skin in the game. Because it's a loan, right? It's a loan. Yeah. It's a zero interest loan. Right. Right. And so and you're like 99% going to get your money back, which, you know, is nice. But I, to me, it's like if you're asking for money for business stuff, it should be a loan. Right. It shouldn't right. be like a grant. It shouldn't be a grant. I, I totally agree with but, that. But I mean, both of them are things that it's like you can make a big difference in someone's life with 100 bucks. Right. And to you, that's not that much. But yeah. to that person, it could be life changing. Or have you heard of uh, Heifer International? No. This is a really cool one. It's supposed to be a fairly effective uh, form of altruism, too, I think, if I'm remembering right. You can donate animals to poor families. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah. And you can donate an animal as a gift. So my parents will do this sometimes for like family friends and family members who are like just hard to buy gifts for. And so I think they've donated like a llama to a family, a cow to a family, like stuff like that. That's amazing. And then you get like, if I remember it, you get a picture of the animals, right? Like here's the happy llama with his new family. And then the family will usually like write you a letter afterwards too. So you get like this nice letter from a family in Peru, like, oh, thank you so much. Oh, that's so cool. It's pretty cool. It's like, and then you, you feel good and it's like making a difference. And you made like a tangible difference. In yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a thing that will make their life better. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of cool. Yeah, I think that makes that that type of stuff makes a lot of sense. I wonder with something like Hyper International if that messes with the local animal market, right? It's like a Tom's the people choice. who sell like, llamas. Yeah, like exactly. That. The people who sell <laughs> llamas, are like fucking charities, <laughs> stupid white people in America ruining our economy again. Yeah, I wonder is has somebody maybe the effect of altruism people have talked about this, but like, what is the best way to go do that? Like if you were to like, because obviously the Tom's thing causes issues. Well, I think that's part of why the malaria nets are so effective because that's non-disruptive to any local right. economy because people just aren't selling them. And I guess medicine too in that in that sense too. Yeah. Like vaccines and stuff. It's not, they just don't have them. And uh, clean water too. Yeah. Because to the extent it is disruptive to the economy, it's disruptive in a good way. Yeah. Because it's breaking up like local monopolies and uh, extortion schemes. Increasing competition too. Yeah. yeah. So... That's probably a good consideration, but I would be concerned about giving too many llamas to like <laughs> one area in Peru and you just like drive a poor llama herder into poverty and starvation, right? Because he can't sell his llamas anymore. That would suck. That would suck. Actually. Yeah, that would really suck. I don't know. I'm going to have to look into this now. I wonder like what people in these other communities think. Like I would love to interview somebody on the other side of the Tom's equation. Yeah. And who's just like a cobbler or somebody who just like was fucked over yeah by this company even though like the company like i this is the thing it's like hard to fault the company too because it's a 
It's a good idea. Yeah, good intentions. On the surface, on the first order effect. But then the second order effect is not good. <laughs> no bueno. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's like hard to fault them because it's really hard to think of the second order effects. Yeah. But second order effects stories are like so funny. And it was probably working too. For a while, probably. Yeah. When they were doing the sale. Like, no, even just from a marketing standpoint. Oh, oh, for getting, yeah, from a marketing standpoint. Yes. Yeah, so they were probably like, oh, this is great. It's working. Like, we're giving all these shoes away. This is amazing. And then, like, the horror story is starting. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, what were we saying? It's probably the second order effect. Well, I was just saying, like, all those stories about uh, what was the thing? I think maybe it was in India. They were trying to quell the snake population. So they started offering rewards for bringing in dead snakes. Oh, I think so I people started breeding snakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the population went way up. It was like, oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> Smart. People are smart. Yeah, people are smart. It's like you got to be careful how you incentivize things. Yep, exactly. Right? Uh, episode 25-ish, the Charlie Munger one. Yeah. All, all about incentives. Yep. Yeah, you, you have to be careful. I forget which country it was that tried to do the... No, it's not China. Maybe it's China. The one that tried to do like the license plates. Like you can only drive on like license plates that end in an even number. Oh, Drive on gosh. a certain day. Yeah. And then people just buy like two cars or two license plates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i remember that like one. it didn't do anything no <laughs> oh gosh there's so many of those someone should write a book about that just like these funnies second order like call it like second order follies boom yeah. i know yeah Your next book maybe yeah you heard it here folks yeah that'll be uh might be a straight to ebook one but yeah <laughs> you better buy that domain before this episode comes out yeah you can start as a blog post it'd be a good blog i think post. it'd be a cool blog i'd post. give it like 10 or 20 claps on medium yeah <laughs> Have you done more medium posts, by the way, after that good, uh, really strong? No, dude, the pressure's too high now. <laughs> You're like, no, that's my last one. Yeah, I, don't, I would follow that <laughs> oh, up. Sorry. It still makes like $100 a day. <laughs> yeah, or a, a week. Sorry, not a day. Okay, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 like a week. I was like, I'm about to do everything on medium. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm writing an article right now that I think will do very well. On medium. Yeah. It's like a deep dive of all of the psychological things that you believe that aren't actually true mm. or that have that have failed replication. Oh, that's a cool idea. I like that. So it's just like a walkthrough. The marshmallow test. Marshmallow test, power posing, Stanford prison experiment, smiling to make yourself happy. One that I heard did get replicated was uh, or has been replicated several times, which I was worried about was inattentional blindness. Have you seen that one, the gorilla one? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one was replicated. So I was really happy to see that. I don't see how that one could not get replicated. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone who's done the test is like, holy shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you watch the YouTube video. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I got 15. And then it's like, did you see the, the gorilla? <laughs> you're like, wait, nope. what? Yeah. <laughs> and anybody who says they saw the gorilla is lying. Well, that's why I was really surprised that the number in the original test, if you read the original paper, yeah. it says 50% of people didn't see it. And I was like, only 50%? No, 50% didn't see it and 50% are liars. Yeah, 50% were like, wait. Yeah, they were probably just like, yeah, I saw the gorilla. That's like, wait, what? Like, yeah, some people were just like, yeah, I saw it. And I'm like, wait, what gorilla? The few times I, or the first time I saw it, because it doesn't work out for the first time, obviously, was in like a class. Mm. And someone sent it to me the first time. Oh, see, the thing I liked about seeing it in a class was that nobody saw it, right? Like nobody uh, noticed the gorilla. And so then when they say it at the end, I was like, what? So you could see the real numbers. Yeah, exactly. Not, yeah. You could tell that nobody in there saw it. Or there's probably that one like asshole kid in the back. <laughs> Dude, I saw the gorilla. No, you didn't, Johnny. Shut it's up. It's weird because if you weren't counting, you probably could see it. Yeah. If you were just not paying attention, which is was kind of what the whole thing is about. Right. That's like when you start paying attention to something, you don't see other things. 
Yeah, that's like one of my favorite ones. So I was really hoping that did not get like refuted. Yeah, no, that, it's not on my list. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're good for now. For now. <laughs> it's like we're coming for you, psychology. <laughs> <laughs> but it's cool because I actually uh, must be a fun article to write. You get to look into all this. Yeah, because I've I've got a pretty big list. It's like 20, 25 things. Now. Oh, wow. Yeah. But the intro to the article is all about what we talked about last week with uh, the beginning of infinity and good science versus bad science. Yeah. And how like explanationless science is very hard to hold up to like deeper inquiry. And so a lot of these things are basically explanationless, right? right? It's like, oh, power posing, you know, increases testosterone and risk taking. It's like, well, why? Right. And then it turns out, okay, it doesn't actually do those things, right? Like Amy Cuddy's research was just wrong. Yeah. So I guess if you can, if you can't answer the why question. Yeah. Then it's hard to take it as seriously. Yep. And then stuff like relativity, right? It gets tested all the time and it holds up, right? right? Like satellites work. Yeah. Right. So (laughs) relativity is true to a certain extent. Yep. So the most of this stuff never gets tested like that, though. You know what's still wild, though, is there is a non-zero percentage of people, hopefully nobody listening to this podcast, who are flat earthers. Yeah. Which I can never tell if they're actually being serious. Yeah. That's the hard thing is if they like actually believe it or if it's just sort of like a fun community thing. Is it like a troll thing? Well, it's like there's a there's a subreddit community. I think it's our flat earth. Okay. And 90% of the people in there are just goofing around. And they think it's funny. So that's what I'm convinced is like it's mostly people goofing around. Yeah. But there's probably people who actually believe it. I mean, I feel like at least half of it are people who are just trying to trigger liberals <laughs> because it's so easy and so fun. Right. And even I do that sometimes just to fuck with people. Right. Are you a flat earth believer? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no but I'll, I'll, say, I'll say stuff in groups sometimes if I want to mess with people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially groups where I'm like only kind of friends with people there. We'll say something like, like, oh, yeah, but you know, like climate change isn't real, right? Like, we've done a lot of studies on this. It's not actually a problem. And then what's the reaction? You just, you, the looks on some people's faces, right? But here's the best part is when nobody says anything, they just like quietly ignore it. And then I have to be like, all right, guys. I'm <laughs> I don't know. It's it's fun getting people angry. Yeah. It's easier on the internet, too. Oh, it's so easy on the internet. There's no context. Exactly. No, no context. People just get angrier than anywhere else because there's no like social cues. <laughs> So I feel like a big part of flat earth thing is just just trolling, trying to get people riled up. (laughs) (laughs) But there are probably some people who actually believe it too. Yeah. Which is scary. There was something I saw today, which I was like, I saw it on Twitter, which means you have to believe it's true because it's on Twitter. Yeah. They they fact check stuff before they let you tweet it. Of course. Yeah. That's how it works. It's like a newspaper. Yeah. (laughs) Newspapers don't do that either. <laughs> uh it was something like flat earthers deny that Australia is real and claim that everybody who's from there is an actor. But I think it was just like one guy yeah. in some forum who said that and that someone turned it into an article that they knew would get shared and get clicked. So that's amazing. <laughs> and I clicked on it, so I fell for it. Well, I also love the uh, the Antarctic ice wall theory. Oh, what's that? The Antarctica is actually just a giant wall of ice that wraps around the the circle of the world, and that's what prevents anything from like falling off the edge. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, that's that's a real. It's a real idea people have in their heads. <laughs> We should do a conspiracy theory episode. Oh, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. Yeah. Next time we don't want to read a book, that'd be a good one to do. Well, I wonder if we could find a good book of conspiracy theories. Yeah. Like, so here would be the here would be the cool way to do it too is to find one that makes very very compelling cases. Yeah, the strongman argument. Yeah, like strongman arguments for certain conspiracy yeah. theories. Or like we were talking about the Sphinx thing last. We week. should tweet that out and see if anybody has suggestions. Yeah, if anyone has a good book. 
That'd be fun. I'd like to read that book. Yeah. I know that I would come out of it believing at least half of them. Yeah. Too. Or at least being curious. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, because we fall for a lot of stuff. Like we like, well, fall for or believe in the true theory of like aquatic apes. Yeah. That Sphinx thing you told me last week. That's the thing is I'm not saying these things are true. No, but they're fun. I'm saying they are interesting to entertain. Yes. Right. Like, and I'm I, I don't know the truth. Right. Right. So, well, hey. Like the Sphinx thing you told me about uh, on the last episode. That's an interesting idea. I still need to find that uh, episode. Yeah, I'll try to find it, send it to you. Yeah, that's like interesting. It's like, even if there's like a 1% chance that that's true. Yeah. That's like a holy it's shit super cool. type of, yeah. I'd be disappointed if it's not true, actually. I know, I would be too. Same thing with aquatic apes. Well, because we keep finding older and older human remnants in North America. It's totally believable. So it's like, all right, there's obviously a lot of human history that we just don't know. About. Right. Well, also, I mean, you even have to think about those people got to North America. Yeah. And we're talking like 13,000 years ago. Yeah. So, and they did not develop here. Like they got here somehow. Another one I want to read about is, uh, and I don't know if there is a good book on this. I'm sure there is. I just don't know about it. Like the history of like the Polynesian islands. Because mm. that is like mind boggling. I read yeah. a, I read a book which is not one we should do on the podcast because it wasn't like well-written or that interesting. Well, the concept was really interesting, but it wasn't a good book. Um, but it was about like the speculations on like intergalactic travel, space travel. Hmm. And the analogy they kept going back to is the Polynesian islands oh. because it was kind of similar. It was like, you will basically be cut off because of this, how, like how the di- vast the distances are going from like the Milky Way to the nearest galaxy. It was just like, there is no technology we know of that could do that communication any kind of reasonable time. So effectively, you're gone, yeah. right? Whereas like going to Mars is like, yeah, the communication is not instant, but you can still communicate with her. Right. It's just, it's off by, uh, is it minute? five minutes? Five minutes. Or yeah. So. yeah. Like it's not that bad. Right. You can send emails. You can text. Yeah. It's like totally fine. So you're not, you're not like gone forever from those people. Whereas if you're going to another galaxy, like you are gone. So they were talking, they went into some of the history of the Polynesian Islands of like when people would go from, you know, somewhere to like Hawaii, right? They're, you're like not going to see those people ever again. Yeah. And you know, there's no way to communicate with them. Like you were on your own basically. So that was the analogy they were giving is like, this is like the second time in human history where, you know, you were probably doing maybe more than second time, but the first time really since then that we're doing this sort of like for sure one way trip. Mm. Like, well, we're not doing it yet, but that's the getting there. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a cool concept, which is why I bought the book and read it, but it was like a series of essays of speculation on how that would work, like the logistics of it, like what, how would the fuel source be? I mean, cool concept. It just wasn't well written. It was hard to go through. Which book was it in, or did I listen, or did I hear this somewhere else, that the amount of energy and resources it would take to actually create like an intergalactic generational ship would basically use up like most of the milky or most of the solar system? Oh, I don't think we talked about that. Uh, okay. I don't know where I was listening to this. It was just, it was like some back of the napkin math, just on the amount of energy it would take to get there. And obviously it's based off of current methods and all of that. But it was basically saying we'd have to, you would need an economy on every stable-ish planet, right? In order to like fund enough development for it. Oh, wow. And you would need resources from some like huge amount of the like usable, like metal-ish type resources. So we like for sure couldn't do it today. Yeah, like we would need to have colonies on Mars and like Jupiter moons and stuff like that and have them all kind of like working together to build an intergalactic um, ship. So I don't remember exactly why, but I guess it has to be so big that it can support multiple generations of humans, right? And be self-contained. And be self-contained and be sustainable for, you know, 100 plus years. Jeez, yeah. So you'd have to have like food. 
like a way to grow food. You'd have to have animals. Animals. Right? You'd have to have fields. Waste management. Yeah, waste. Well, waste management is easy. Yeah. But oh, that's true. <laughs> no, but you might want to use that to as have, like yeah, fertilizer, fertilizer in you'd some have way. To water generation. Yeah. Right. Not to mention like just you would, how do you handle like elements? Right. Because I'm just thinking like having enough air right oh right so you need plants to help you circulate oxygen but then you also need a way to recycle water and recycling is not 100 percent efficient so you're going to have some degradation and so i guess it would need enough starting material yeah to last there's no way to get more material unless although you probably stop it actually no if you're going in between galaxies there's nothing in between there's not even like comets and stuff right there might be the occasional one, but the odds of coming across right. would be infinitesimal. So, because yeah, comets have ice, but that's it. Yeah, once yeah. you leave, you're on it. Probably for like a hundred plus years, and how fast you can go. And that's what boggles my mind about like the Polynesian explorers too. Is like they have to carry all the food with them and fresh water and stuff too, because like there's no there's no desalination like thing. I mean, I know you're on water, but you can't drink the ocean water, right? So, like, just the logistics of it are kind of mind boggling too. Yeah. And apparently the boats were like not that. Yeah, they like canoes. Yeah. <laughs> so pretty impressive. Yeah, if there's a book about that, I'd love if somebody has a recommendation, I would love to learn more about that. Yeah. Anyway, we're way off topic. But I, we actually, I mean, we got to the main premise. Yes. Right. So basically what he's saying is that the goal or what somebody with a lot of wealth should be using their money to enrich the lives of other people who you know don't have access to that kind of wealth and in a meaningful way that they can enrich their own lives. Right. This is the main thing that he says is that uh, in bestowing charity, the main consideration should be to help those who will help themselves to provide part of the means by which those who desire to improve may do so to give those who desire to use the aids by which they may rise to assist, but rarely or never to do all. Right. So don't just like pick them up and put them in a better state, but give them the ability to do it themselves. Right. Right. Well, it goes back to like the give a man a fish or teach a man to fish thing. Exactly. So you give them a library and then the people who are motivated will use that to better their lives. The people who aren't won't. Yep. And that's sort of up to them to decide what life they want from it. Yeah. So it's like you're giving them the means to do it. And then if they do it or not, is their choice. Yeah, exactly. But he's I think he's also an optimist in that sense where he thinks there will be people who will take advantage of it and then they'll generate wealth on their own. So it's the most efficient way as well of giving because you're doing the most good for society because then ideally those people would do the same thing. Get a compounding effect. Yeah, exactly. Which I'm sure he was very familiar with the compounding effect. Oh, yeah. Just being a businessman. Being a businessman in an era with no income tax where you just have like infinite massive returns on capital. Yep. And I think he makes a good point here where he says that neither the individual nor the race is improved by almsgiving. Those worthy of assistance, except in rare cases, seldom require assistance. Yep. So the people who kind of like need to be propped up, you shouldn't be giving money to anyway because they're probably not going to use it effectively to improve everyone else's condition. And the people who will use that money to improve everyone else's condition don't need you to give it to them. That's like a Darwinian uh, assessment of the situation. Yeah. Right. It's like a survival. Like the people who need or sorry, the people who need your help are not like weren't going to pull themselves up anyway. Right. It's kind of like what he's saying here Uh, or rarely would have done anything on their own. Yeah. I think the question then, and we'll get more to this next week, yeah. is, you know, what is the adequate level of support for the people who, in Carnegie's words, won't help themselves? Right. Right. And I don't know, it's a tough question. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to explore we'll, it more we'll next explore week. that next week yeah. for sure. Ooh, this is like a series. I know. Episode. Yeah. It's like, tune in next week <laughs> to find out. <laughs> We're turning into one of those. Should we let poor people starve in the streets? <laughs> 
Neil. That's our soundbite. Neil says yes. Yeah. Nat, Nat says no. <laughs> Nat just wants to eat them. <laughs> Nat the cannibal here. Nat the cannibal. <laughs> I think that came up as early as emergency. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because you're saying if... if you were in a situation where you're going to starve or eat someone, would you eat someone? It's like, yeah, of course I would eat yeah. someone. Like, I'm not going to pretend to be this saintly person who would never eat another human. Like, if I'm going to die, if I don't eat someone, yeah, I'm going to eat someone. <laughs> it's not a hard question. Anyone who says they wouldn't eat someone is a liar. They're lying to you, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Aw. It's true. Why he would he, he no, wouldn't. Of and I got in, into a, a small spat about this once where she asked if she died, if we were like stranded on an island together, would I eat her? And I said, yes. Okay. <laughs> Wait, but, is that bad? Yeah, let's see what it's bad. Wouldn't you want to be useful? You don't, no. want, me, you don't want me to starve to death, do you? <laughs> she does. She does. Okay. <laughs> okay, that answers it. All right, well, there we go. <laughs> Wait, why, why, wouldn't, uh, why wouldn't you eat Ned? Mm, but you're start, stranded on an island. Home? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I think I, I still You're think you're going to let the bacteria eat it. I think if I you guess. hadn't eaten in 40 days and you're starving, I think my my big meaty calf muscles would start to look real tasty. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, well, I think one thing in this section that, of course, is like the caveat, right, is I think which episode do we cover this on? I think the, the Kanye West episode. Okay. Right. Of like in certain cases, the game is somewhat rigged or you just haven't seen a better example like if you grow up and we were talking about and i think even the gun control episode uh like some of these neighborhoods which are there's just no positive examples for you it's hard to know who's worthy of assistance or not because some people maybe just with the right example would be you know which is where i think libraries or, or that type of idea makes a lot of sense because you're showing people these positive examples and maybe the people who will strive will see those and want to strive or at least see a path out of their situation um, which is Kanye said something similar yeah, on the album. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to know where the line is, right? Because like in some ways, well, I'll save some of this for next week. Yeah, well, we'll save some for next week. Yeah. So tune in next week for further discussion. Yeah, but it was a cool line that he yeah. put in there that was, uh, you know, gives you um, a lot to think about. And then he gives some names of other people who have done, I think, what he's advocating for here. Yeah. The name Stanford was in there. Yeah, I saw that. Which is cool. Yeah. I heard that. Uh, and I could be completely wrong here. Mm-hmm. I heard from a friend okay. that Stanford, the the founding history of it was it was founded by, uh, I think this guy, Senator Stanford and his wife, mm-hmm. because their son like didn't get into an Ivy League school or something. That's amazing. <laughs> there was like some, some I reason. hope that's true. I hope that's true. Actually, you know what? I'm going to Google this right now. Yeah. So, well, we got to wrap oh, up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tune in next week to find out if that's what happened with Senator Stanford. I'm just trying to see if there's anything else in here. Well, there was the whole, if you die rich, you die disgraced. Yeah, I, I like that line. It's yeah. a good one to wrap up on, which is just that the man who dies thus rich dies disgraced, right? You want to use all of your money in your life to enrich your society and community. Yeah. And if you don't, then you're a failure and you shouldn't have earned all that money in the first place. Yeah. Well, because he said it's like a trust fund that you're entrusted to, to use on betterment of society. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. That was fun. That was a good so one. I'm glad we finally did it. Very tangent-y episode. Yeah, super tangent-y, which, is, which I kind of like about the article ones because we've got more freedom for tangents. We're not as rushed yeah. to like get through 800 pages of computer science stuff. But yeah, so if you enjoyed this episode, uh, definitely check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash made you think, or you can just Google Patreon made you think and you'll find us. Good way to use your wealth. Exactly. Great way to use your wealth to support the betterment of others. Because people listen to this and they learn, they get inspired to read, 
And I mean, the basic the basic pledge on Patreon is just five dollars a month. Yeah. So that gets you access to discussions for these episodes, the book notes, show notes, uh, what is coming up, any bonus material that we record before and after the episode. And that's like a dollar and twenty five per episode. Right. Right. Which is not a very big commitment. Yeah. We're doing four episodes a month. So if you think that this is worth like a Starbucks coffee a month. Yeah. Then we would love it if uh, you hopped over to Patreon and supported the show. Well, and I think the main reason we're doing that is we even decided to do the Patreon is it gives us a lot of freedom to basically have creative control over yeah. how the episodes go. I think, you know, we if you listen to the, ep- the show, you know how uh, cognizant we are of incentives. And when you have, you know, having advertisers, of course, changes how you would structure your show, what we would talk about, the kinds of things we'd want to how controversial we'd want to get. Whereas if it's Patreon, it's just you guys. All you're, You guys are the people we answer to. Yeah, we can say whatever we want. Yeah, it's great. Unless you guys punish us for that. Yeah, well, it's possible. Yeah, but I don't. I don't think they will. will. No, Our audience is not a. Like it's not a easily triggered audience. No, I hope. Otherwise, not. they wouldn't be listening. <laughs> yeah, they would have been, <laughs> not be they they gone be this like far. An hour yeah. Ago. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't have gone to the discussion of eating each other. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. Our audience has a strong intestinal fortitude. They do, yes. <laughs> mm. It's almost dinner time, actually. <laughs> Getting hungry. Uh. But uh, yeah, other ways you can support the show, leave us a review on iTunes uh, or wherever your local podcasts are sold. Uh, <laughs> that just helps uh, more people find the show, helps us show up in recommended podcast results. Uh, if we're trying to get guests on in the future, it makes us, you know, look more legit to them. Yep. So definitely do that if you have a second and you haven't yet. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. Uh, tell your coworkers. Tell your blog, email, newsletter subscribers. Tell your Twitter followers. Tell your grinder matches. Yes. It's, it's a great opening line, <laughs> it actually. It is. It's like, have you heard this episode? Yeah, have you listened to this episode on Made You Think? About eating people? <laughs> <laughs> oh, baby. <laughs> get my juices going (laughs) (laughs) no but seriously telling other people that's like the best way the the podcast has grown i think it's just word of mouth word of mouth you guys telling other people and you know we can only shout about it so much exactly my twitter feed has this logo enough on it yeah it's mostly just (laughs) it's about made you think and beer exactly (laughs) that's basically what it is at this point all neil does is drink beer and talk about books i sometimes have to like throw other tweets in there just to break it up (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, I haven't tweeted this week's episode, the recap episode that came oh, out. Oh, yeah. I partially cognizantly did that because on Tuesday when the episode came out, I looked at my feed and I'm like, the last like seven tweets I've had are made you think, made related. You think related. I really need to change it up for a couple of days. So I'm going to post that tweet tomorrow. All right. The it breaks episode. up the downloads a bit. Exactly. So. so we get to even it out a little bit. Exactly. But yeah, tell people. Yeah, tell people about it. Tweet at us. Yeah, tweet at us. We love hearing from you guys. Uh, I'm at Nat Eliason. I'm at the real Neil S. Book recommendations, what you think about the show. Feedback. Yep. And you can always also go to majethinkpodcast.com slash support. We've got some show supporting sponsors there that'll give you discounts. They give us a little kickback if you check them out. Yep. And we use all the products. We use all the products. We're frequently enjoying them during the episodes. Yep. So they're, they're all legit endorsements. And uh, you can also buy anything off of Amazon from there and we'll get a four to 5% cut of that. So it doesn't cost you anything. Yeah. And you can help distribute Jeff Bezos as well. Exactly. Yeah. By doing that. Cause he, for some reason is not supporting the show yet. Right. So this is a way for you to do it for him. Uh, very helpful. Yeah. This is a way to take, take control into your own hands. Exactly. So cool. Uh, we will see you all next week where we will continue some of the themes that we discussed today. Yep. Woo. <laughs> and join Patreon if you want to know what that uh exactly. that episode is ahead of time. So you can read the book before then. Yep. 
Cheers, everyone. See you next time.